the consideration on the back page, and this comes from William Barclay out of his book, More New Testament Words, and this is a quote that he gives about hope. And he says this, The Christian is the man of hope because he keeps his eyes fixed on God. Augustine told a wretched man who thought of nothing but his sins, Look away from yourself and look to God. The God would look is the secret of the Christian hope. And I, and I do really believe that that's the case. I mean, we have today where you've been told over and over, particularly a lot of the kids have been told over and over, think highly of yourself. Well, you've got to have some self-esteem. And really, you know the thing that I've seen today? It's, the problem is not self-esteem. The problem is too much esteem. And I think it's driving people crazy. Because you know you ain't no good. All these people walking around telling themselves, I'm this. What was that this skit on? They had a skit on Saturday Night Live where the guy looked into the mirror and says, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. <laughs> well, written reality is you know you're no good. You know you're no good and you know I'm no good. And when you understand what scripture says, that God provided a savior and he's the one that's able to help us to live a life when we're dependent upon him. It stabilizes you not only uh, spiritually, but otherwise in every area of life. And that it makes a huge difference when you understand it. That brings us to our message today. And we are on message two of the implications of the working of workings of the mind. And so we've been talking about this, and it's very important that you have an understanding of how the mind works and how Satan attacks the mind. He attacks the mind. Now, he attacks it in a couple of ways. Uh, now, I think he uses a lot, uh, several of those mind terms that we talked about last week. Uh, that dialogizomai, I think, is a, is a real big one. When someone is going through inward debating in their minds, inward debating in their minds that Satan can manipulate that process or, or as the thoughts are going through the mind dianoia, Satan manipulates that process and so the interesting thing that is more subtle that he does is he manipulates the mind as it's coming to a conclusion he manipulates the mind as it's coming to a conclusion so you have thoughts that are going through your mind. You can see what's true. And then you get down to the end and he throws a monkey wrench in the process. And says, well, what, but what about this? Well, I wonder what if, the, what if this is not true? Well, you know that he says there's other books of the Bible that are out there. The book of Thomas. You know, this kind of stuff. And we can see that what he does is very insidious. Because you actually think that it's you that are thinking this. And we'll see that it's actually him. And he's very crafty. And most people don't see it. I, I really believe today a lot of your mental health things that they're talking about today are spiritual issues. Notice we didn't have these mental health issues 50 years ago, 60 years ago, and now there's an epidemic of it. There's an epidemic. 
And I would say to a degree, most people understood that there was this being called Satan and he had the ability to affect your mind. And today, not very many people believe that. They have become um, stewards of science. Science. Science is everything. They've made science into a god that they're following. And they don't believe that there's anything outside of what they can see. And we talked about it last week. Science can't measure the human spirit. Put that under a microscope. Let me see if you can see that. They can't measure the soul. Can you put that under a microscope? Those are two huge aspects of men that are hugely important in how you think, how you feel, affects your behavior. And yet they have no clue about it. I read some of these science magazines, you know, because I, I, I just get a kick out of it because it just makes me laugh. I, that's what I do when I, I just want to laugh. And they think that the sum total of who you are is your brain. And that they can map out your brain and that if your brain has certain spots in it that lights up, that somehow it's going to affect who you are. And they can have indicators as to whether or not you're going to be a, a mass killer or some crazy person. It's almost like, what was that movie that they came out with some years ago called, um, uh, I can't remember what Danzel Washington, where they could predict who was going to commit crimes by your brain. And this is, this is how crazy they've gotten because they refuse to acknowledge that man is made up of body, soul, and spirit, and that soul and spirit have a huge role in how you behave. And they refuse to understand because they think they're so smart. They think they're so smart. And they don't understand that there's more to it than that, and only God knows a lot of things that they can never know. And you can see this with this issue of Satan and how he manipulates the workings of the mind. He tries to take your conclusions by introducing some other information in exchange for what is true. Now, we're going to look at how he does that today. And in future weeks, we're going to see the result of it. The result of it is going to be that you can deceive people. And you have people who are so deceived, you can tell them the truth and they won't believe it. You could just actually show them the information that is true. And they won't believe it. Why? Satan has manipulated them to such a degree they are deceived. Do you know this is what happened to um, Eve? And we're going to see it. He so thoroughly manipulated Eve and her conclusions that she thought that what she was doing was right. And she was thoroughly deceived. And we'll see how most of what people are doing, most of what Satan does, most people don't even think it's a problem at all. They don't even see it. Even as they're tools of Satan. And we'll see it. 
Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful to us believers that we have the opportunity to see things the way they really are. And as we see things the way they really are, we're able to see through the mechanisms in which Satan uses to try to affect the conclusions of our minds. And we're thankful that as believers that we have the opportunity to be able to see these things in the right way and to be able to put on the armor that we might be able to have victory over him and that we won't be deceived, that we can see things the way they really are. And we're thankful for that potential in your son's Amen. And so we want to start, let's start with the, uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and then we'll, we'll backtrack. In 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, Now notice, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and the the backdrop of this is that he's writing to this church, and these believers, as you know, um, actually thought that he was the false apostle. He's having to defend himself against these false teachers. Now, I read in the the scripture earlier, uh, I read all the way down to uh, verse 13 and 14, because I think that it's crucial to see that. The mechanisms and the people that Satan was using to actually deceive the Corinthians were these false teachers in the church. Do you know I think Satan actually has more of a field day inside the church than he does on the outside? And here's how he does it. Notice, let's go uh, drop down to uh, 12 and then we'll go back up to 11 just to see how did he get there. Notice in verse 12, he says, But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And so you had these false teachers that were in Corinth who were pretending to be the real thing. And they were teaching things that weren't true. And the Corinthians believed it. Think about this. This was a church that Paul led most of these people to the Lord. How did they get to a point where they think he's the false apostle? Well, you can see that Satan manipulated their thinking. And so notice what happens. He's defending himself against these guys. And he says, eh, these guys are transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. This is a really interesting word because what he says is on the outside, they are doing things to make themselves look like that there's something on the inside. And it's not. It's all superficial. It's all superficial. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing, notice here, if his ministers also be transformed as what? (laughs) Ministers of evil? Ministers of darkness? Ministers making people commit adultery? No, ministers of righteousness. You see that? Do you know that Satan is spending most of his time today 
not trying to make people do bad stuff. That's one of the misnomers of what Satan is doing. It will not be until the tribulation period and Revelation 12 that you actually see Satan for who he really is. Why? What's going to happen in Revelation 12 at mid-trib? God's going to deny him access to heaven. And you see at that time he comes down to the earth having great wrath. For he knows his time is short. But do you know what Satan is doing today? And has been doing the majority of the time. Is trying to duplicate what God does. And how does he do it? He uses his people. It's really a brilliant strategy. Brilliant strategy. How do you stop something? How do you actually um, break something up? It's better to infiltrate it. And to work from the inside out. It's very, very effective. Very effective. And so notice he says, verse 15, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers be transformed as what? Ministers of righteousness. Satan's people today are not interested in all of these drug dealers and all of these people who are doing all of this evil stuff out there in the world, he's ashamed of those people. Do you realize that? That's not what he wants. What he wants is people to presuppose and to act right, totally void of what God has provided. That's where he gets a lot of his leverage. So, what happens now? Let's go back in the early part of this chapter. These people come, or these apostles, and they offer the Corinthians an alternative to what Paul is teaching. Notice in verse 1. Would to God that you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means... As the serpent beguiled Eve. Now we're going to come back to this next week. And that word beguiled is an interesting word. How did he, what did he do to her? He deceived her. Now there's a lot of ways that you can deceive people. Somebody comes to your door. And my wife tells me that I'm a sucker for this. Kids come to the door. They're selling magazines. And you listen to their little spiel. And, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you think, oh, okay, this is a bunch of nonsense. But I'm going to help these little kids out. Right? I know I'm being taken, but I'm going to help them out. But then there are people who will sell you something and you believe everything that they say. Hook, line, and sinker. And you believe it's true. So that you begin to act upon what they said like it's actually true. And you are thoroughly deceived. So deceived that you believe that what you have heard is right. And it's nothing but a lie. And so notice, he says, he beguiled Eve. Now notice, here's what we want to get to. Through his subtlety. Now how did he do this? How does does one convince a person that something is a lie 
I mean, something is true when it's an absolute lie. Well, I think we're seeing a lot of that in our society today. Well, I think it's highly effective. People can do it. I mean, it, with our mechanisms to, today of uh, mass media and whatnot, it's very effective. How many of you have bought a product that you saw on TV that was just the greatest thing since sliced bread, and you ran out and got it, and you said, boy, this is going to really work. And you take it home and you think, this is a piece of junk. Right? Nobody here has fallen for that. <laughs> but it happens, right? People sell you things on things that are not true. They only tell you what they want you to know. The rest of it, they leave. Now, let's look at this with regard to Eve, and we'll see this, how he did it. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, and I'm going to sneak over here and get my Bible, I forgot. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Notice here in Genesis chapter 3 what he does to Eve. Now, there's a lot that is going on here, and... One of the things I want you to know is that God makes a distinction between sin and transgression and trespass. You can look as all you would in the Bible. You will not find that Eve sinned. It doesn't say that not one time. It says that she transgressed. She stepped over a line that she was told not to step over. But notice there's three things that Satan does here. Uh, We'll start with verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And so this word subtle is an interesting word. When we come over to the New Testament, it's going to actually be translated, as we saw it in 2 Corinthians 11, that word subtle that was used there is the word crafty. Crafty. Uh, Insert, use car salesman here. No. (laughs) But crafty. You ever seen somebody who's trying to make a sale And they'll do whatever it takes to convince you. They go down one line of reasoning, and if that's not working, they turn and they immediately go down another line of reasoning. And they're willing to change on a dime to convince you that what they're selling is true. And so notice this word, it's in the Hebrew word for subtle there in Genesis chapter 3. It's actually translated 11 times in the Old Testament. One for uh, one, and this would be my, my definition of it, the Hebrew word, one who by means of incessant forethought is able to strategize as to how to gain an advantage over foes. So they're thinking about this, and they've thought about this way ahead of time, and they've observed how to be able to strategize to convince you of what they want you to do. Uh, and used mostly in a negative sense in the Old Testament. And so notice this um, is translated several times for prudent. Let's just look at a couple of examples of it. Look at uh, Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 16. Proverbs uh, 13 and verse 16. It's interesting that it's translated prudent because, and I think the reason is here, is that somebody who has forethought, they're they're aware of what's going on and they are very alert about what's happening in the situation. And notice in verse 16 it says, 
Every prudent man deals with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. And so this word for supple, a prudent one, one who is savvy enough to avoid things that might undermine him. You see, some people are very crafty and they sit back and they watch what's going on. And they're not going to put their cards out on the, on the deck. You see a guy who's a fool, oh, they put all their cards on the deck. They just throw them all out there. A prudent man, he sits back and he's very savvy about how he operates. <laughs> and he's not just going to put everything out there. And that's actually that word that is translated subto over in, the old, uh, in Genesis. And let's go back there because I'll give you some other scriptures there in the outline and you can look those up. Um, and, uh, but I wanted to really focus on that. And so in Genesis 3, uh, going back to Genesis 3, there's three things that it says that he does here uh, with Eve. And so he asks her three questions. And these three questions causes her to doubt what God actually said. Notice in Genesis chapter 3, he says, uh, And he says unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the, tr- the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And it's interesting, she adds something here that God did not say to Adam. And notice in verse 4, And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat thereof, that your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as God, or really it's as Elohim. In other words, God's hiding something from you. He's holding back. He's not saying to you what really is going to happen. You're going to be like Elohim, knowing good, or really it's uh, that word, Good and evil. And notice in verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And it was pleasant to the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave it unto her husband. And he did eat. And the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. That word naked actually I would translate it, they were stripped. Now, I believe what was happening here is Adam and Eve, before they fell, had a light that was uh, overshadowed them. And they saw that that light was gone. That's what they saw. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made made, uh, for themselves apron. And so what he did here is he questioned what God had said. Now, I believe these questions were meant to to redirect the conclusions that Eve came to. Here's what God says. Satan comes in and offers an alternative. Eve took the alternative. Now, you ask yourself why. Now, I put, if you look on your uh, bulletin on page 9, there's a chart And what you find as you look at what Satan does, why do people take the alternative? 
because there's something that they believe that they're getting in exchange for it that's better than what God provides. So here, and you'll see it as we go down the line with Israel, we'll see that they're blinded. And what were they blinded by? Their traditions. Their traditions were more important to them than what God had provided. With this idea of unforgiveness in 2 Corinthians 2.11, pride. Pride was more important. Not forgiving this guy that was uh, with his father's wife was more important to the Corinthians than what God had said. With the, alter- with the unsaved man, we'll see alternative information. And you can see this as you give somebody who's unsaved the gospel. Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and he was raised the th- from the grave on the third day. What does Satan do? He swoops in, gives alternative information. But what about this? And do you know the number one thing that the unsaved people will say? And I've never really understood it. But what about all the hypocrites in the church? Right? Isn't that what they say? Well, what really, a couple of things jump out at me when you hear that. First of all, there's more hypocrites in the world than there are in the church. Do you realize that? And the other thing is, you're on your way to hell. What difference does it make how many hypocrites there are in the church? But Satan uses that, and all of a sudden, it diverts their minds away from what's true. Right? Uh, with Eve, you will be like God are like Elohim. The prospects of that diverted Eve away from what was really true. Isn't it interesting what he did? You will be like Elohim. So what is he doing? Here's the truth. He comes in as the the information is coming through and you see what's true and he says, but what about this? And before you know it, he hooks you and takes your mind off into something that absolutely is not true at all. And really one of the best ways of doing it, do you know one of the best lies is a lie that probably is 99% true? That's one of the best lies you could use. Well, I'll give you an example that somebody once said, if I put strychnine out here and told you, and put it in some water and said 99% of that is water 1% is strychnine would you drink it? well it's just 1% it's just 1% and so and that's what happens and then we'll see that uh, I put potential subjects here uh, because those are things that didn't actually happen but it was potentiality that through anxiety and also a different gospel uh, that Satan can manipulate the mind Okay, so let's go back and look at 2 Corinthians is where we want to go. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and that puts us on D on page 3. So notice here, he says um, in verse uh, 3, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. This word subtlety, again, it's the, uh, the word panorgia. And panergia literally means, this definition I would give it, it means every work. The willingness to do whatever is necessary in order to subdue one and to believing the thing being peddled. 
you, you'll come up with anything necessary. And if you've ever dealt with somebody who's a salesperson, we took our phone, our landline, out of our house. I've just gotten so sick of people calling. Every time you turn around, it's some salesperson calling, and they all got their sticks. And it's just, it's, it was too much. But you listen to these people, and what you see is that they have a stick to try to convince you. And really, you might have a car, you might have something else that's working, but they're trying to convince you that that's not good enough, that there's some alternative. And you can see this used in Scripture. Look at Luke, the 20th chapter. Luke chapter 20. Now, you had these teachers in Israel. Um, again, you, you can see it, and we'll see it with Israel, is that they were more concerned about their traditions than they were what's true. They elevated their traditions above the truth. And you can see that in, in a lot of ways with Christendom today and your churches. They've got their own little stick going, and it has nothing to do with what God is doing at all. And notice verse 20. And they watched him, and they sent forth spies, that they should feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words. And notice here, I mean, this ideal of this pre- pretense. One of the things you see with Satan is pretense. They pretend to be something that they're not in order to get you to do what they want you to do. That they might take hold of his words so that they might deliver him unto the, uh, the power and the authority of the governor. And they ask him, saying, Master, we know that thou teachest rightly. Now, this is a lie. They don't believe this. Neither accepts thou the person of any, but teaches the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? So what are they trying to do? Well, we've just been told here in verse 20 they're trying to trap him. They're trying to pretend like they're righteous. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to offer up a different alternative in order to trap him. But notice... You see our word for craftiness here in verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness. See the subtle way that they were going about it? Pretending to be righteous men in order to actually make it look like they actually were genuinely wanting to know what he thought. And nothing could have been further from the truth. He perceived their craftiness. um, And in verse 23... And said unto them, why tempt ye me? And notice what he says to them, verse 24. Show me a penny whose image and subscription hath it. And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he says, therefore, unto them, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. And unto God the things which are God's. And so you see that use of the word craftiness there. Now look also in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14. And you see it used here. Used a lot in the church today. A lot of what's going on in your churches today, honestly, it's, um, it's really shameful. And a lot of it is satanic. A great much of what's going on in your churches today is pure satanic. Look at what he says here in Ephesians chapter 4. 
So notice in verse 11, he gives some of these temporary gifts to the church. Um, and some of, them, some of them are still in, in existence today. Verse 11, and he gave some apostles, some prophets. Now, again, we'll say that the, the apostle gift is not in existence today. And if, if anybody tells you they're an apostle, take them back to 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. An apostle could do three kinds of miracles. So one of the miracles is that they could raise someone from the dead. So just take them over to the local cemetery. If they said they're an apostle, they should be able to do some, do your stuff. Show me. I'm from Missouri. An apostle could do three kinds of miracles. Second Corinthians 12, 12 tells you that. And so notice, uh, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, and I would translate that, even teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into a unity of the faith and in a knowledge of the Son of God and to a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, or really I think the Christ, that we henceforth no more be children tossed to and fro, and notice it's tossed to and fro as being blown about and being turned and carried about. And so you see this in the church today. And this is why I believe a lot of what's going on in your churches today really is satanic. And they're introducing doctrines into the church that are not true. Most of it is a, a reconstruction and manipulation of Old Testament doctrine in order to manipulate people to do what they want them to do. Uh, tithing would be a good example of it. A classic example of it. It's just not true. And so notice, carried about with every wind of doctrine and the slight of men and the cunning craftiness. And so you have this craftiness, this methodology of craftiness that leads to deception. And what do they do? A slight of man. I mean, you, you look at what's happening with Christendom today and so many different uh, fads that come through Christendom. Remember the prayer of Jabez? It blew through and now it's gone. Then you get... What would Jesus do? Well, you know, Jesus could walk on water, can you? We're never told to do what Jesus did except for to suffer like he suffered. And you have all of these things that come through. And so you have this methodology that they use within Christendom to manipulate people, not for God's purposes, but for their own and so you see it one other time. So show you well. It's actually several other times. Look at Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter four. So these false teachers were using this at Corinth, and Paul refused to use it. He would not use this method of manipulation, of twisting things to get people to do what you want them to do. And so you can do it. You can twist things in such a way that you can convince people to do things that are absolutely not true. And that's what Satan does. These false teachers were doing it at Corinth, and notice Paul rejected it. Verse 1, therefore, seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we faint not. 
but we've re renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness. See, that is a huge method that is used by Satan in, it was used in Corinth, I believe it's being used in your churches today, to manipulate people to do things that are for the purposes of the people has nothing to do with what God wants whatsoever. And so notice he says, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so you have the, uh, the truth of God's word. You put the truth out there. We understand, as we said here, as ministers or as uh, uh, preachers of the word, you're going to say a lot of things that are true, a lot of people are going to say, that's stupid. I don't believe it. Hey, it's not like we're not going to all find out the truth. I don't even argue with people anymore. I really don't. It's not like we're not going to all find out the truth. You, you, want it, you don't believe it? Fine. God will show it to you. If God doesn't show you, I certainly can. <laughs> and so notice he says, uh, going back to 2 Corinthians 11, he says, uh, and what they did and these false teachers were doing uh, before you go back to 2 Corinthians 11, go back to ch chapter 2. I just want to show you this. What these guys were doing was they were taking the word of God and they were. Now, this word here is he says that they were corrupting it. But what they it, the word actually has the idea of hawking it. They were hawking it. You ever seen someone who had something, uh, say somebody you have some of these gasoline stations that do this. They take gasoline and they put stuff in it to make it go further. This is what they were doing to the word of God. They were taking the word of God and adding to it in order to make it go further. In order to make, in their minds, what they thought make it more appealing. And so notice he says in verse 17, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as sincerity but as of God and the sight of God speak we in Christ. So what was these other guys doing? They were hawking the word of God. Hey, some people who are very pragmatic, they say, oh, it's effective. Now, how do you know that it's effective? In many people's minds, proof of the fact that it works is how many people I can attract. So if I can attract 20,000 people, as some famous guy down in Houston does, well, it must work. I still go back to the fact that in the upper room, out of all the people that followed the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry, how many were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost? It's really interesting. Do you know there were only 120 when he began in, Genesis, in, in uh, John 6 to tell them, labor not for the meat that perishes, but the meat that, that, that lives unto eternal life, what did it say? All of his disciples turned away and followed him. Many of his disciples turned away and followed him no more. So you can take the truth, you can add to it, and you can attract thousands. I mean, I, I guess there's a way you can do that, and we would have to buy this whole building out. Right? We wouldn't have enough room. And so notice he says, 
that Satan deceived Eve through his subtlety in uh, 2 Corinthians 11.3. And so that word uh, through, uh, uh, I would say by means of his subtlety. So this craftiness is the instrument that Satan uses to deceive. Right? And so this turning on a dime, being able to take information and twist it and put it, and look, I don't think he's making a huge twist here. Most of these guys who are Satan's ministers are not going to come out and say, I don't believe in, uh, I don't believe in the Trinity. They don't say just sweeping things like this. They just put little twists on things. It's not huge sweeping things. Just little twists that when you twist it, it takes that which is true and makes it untrue. And you can see an example of it here as we move forward. He says, by means of his subtlety or his craftiness, so that your minds, and there's our word here for Noema, the conclusions of your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in the Christ. So what's happening here? Well, we live by grace. So when you were saved, you believe the facts of the gospel. Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and raised again on the third day. Before then, you were in a position in Adam. Every single person born into this world is born into the family of Adam. When you believe the facts of the gospel and you're saved, the Holy Spirit takes you out of that position and he baptizes you into the body of Christ. And that's where God sees you. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. So you're in this position There is a simplicity of just counting what God says to be true, that that's who I am. There's no work I have to do. I didn't do any work to be saved. I don't have to do any work to continue to be saved. If I don't do one single work from this point forward, it's not going to change the work that Christ did. But what are these people saying? Oh, no. There's something you've got to do. You've got to do it. You've got to do something to add to what Christ has done. And so, notice Paul goes on to say, in verse 4, he adds several things here. For he that comes and preaches another Jesus whom you have not preached. Listen, so they talk about Jesus. Here's a good example of it. Do you know Paul did not talk about Christ doing his earthly ministry very much? Look in his epistles. You know what his focus is up on? The resurrected and glorified Christ. What does he say in 2 Corinthians 5? Though I once knew him after the flesh, I know him that way no longer. What is our relationship to Christ having been raised from the dead? What does he say in Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified together with Christ. Yet no longer I live, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate or set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness came by law, then Christ died with no strings attached. There was no point to why he died. But these guys are saying, oh, no, 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 there's something you have to do. So he says, he talks about Jesus. Paul talks about the resurrected and glorified Christ. That's where his focus is. Read his epistles. 
And he says, if there be another spirit, or really it's a different kind of spirit, and uh, how they were talking about the Holy Spirit, and that's an interesting thing as you see it uh, bandied about today, or another gospel, a different kind of gospel. Now, I believe he's talking here about gospel for present and salvation. That they're talking about how you live by, not by grace, but by law. It's always interesting to me to hear people say that, oh, well, we got to obey the Ten Commandments. And so many scriptures in the New Testament that talks about the fact that you are not under law, but under grace. I, I can name you many of them. And you hear people say from the pulpit that, no, 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 we, we, we're still under law. Yeah, we're under grace, but we're under law, too. It's kind of like a hybrid of law and grace is what they, they come up with. And so these Corinthians had been hoodwinked by that, and it was a problem. Now, notice you see it again with Israel and how Israel was hoodwinked in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14. So he talks about here that Israel, the nation of Israel today is blinded. They're blind. They, if you talk to, if you go out and talk to most of your Jewish people today, they do not believe in Jesus Christ. They're still waiting on the Messiah and they don't realize he's already come. And so notice why. Notice in verse uh, 13. But not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look at the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded. Whose minds were blinded? Israel's mind was blinded. How? Well, for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. And so as they read the Old Testament, they're not reading it like you and I read it. Why? Satan is blinding their minds to see the Old Testament totally different than what you and I see it. And a good illustration of this, and I give you some illustrations here that you see in Scripture. Um, look, if you would, in um, Acts chapter 7, verse 38 through 39. Acts 7. You know, it's an interesting thing that uh, this chapter 7 is a great narrative of the history of uh, the nation of Israel. And so, and how they saw things. That God gave them the law. They saw the law as something that they could actually adhere to, though they couldn't ever do it. And so notice he says in verse 36, He brought them out after he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up for you among your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye, uh, ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spoke to him in the, at Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them. And in their hearts turned back again to Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make gods for us to go before us. For as this Moses which brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not what has become of him. And notice what they did. Verse 41. They made calves in those days, and they offered sacrifices unto the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their hands. 
Then God turned them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. O you house of Israel, have you not offered me slain beasts and sacrifices for the uh, space of 40 years in the wilderness? And they were blind. That word for blind actually is the word for, you got two words for blind that is used in the scripture. One is tuflos, which is the shielding or the blocking of truth from the eyes of the mind in order that it does not register and have its intended effect. But this one actually is a different word. It's actually the word for poros, and it means to grow callous, to be dull and hard to understand. You can talk to people who are hardened. They, it's the word actually, is, you could, our English word could be petrified. You can have people whose hearts are petrified. No matter what you say to them, it ain't going in. This is what was happening with Israel. Now, notice an, a good example of it in uh, Matthew. Uh, look at Mark chapter 7, verse 9. Mark 7 and verse 9. And what happened, and I think this is what they they did, is they, over time, began to see the Old Testament only as tradition. I'll give you an example of this. We were over in Corfu, Greece, when we were uh, in this trip, me, Scott, and Jill, and Joyce. We go into this Jewish synagogue, and we're talking to the woman there, and oh, I'm asking her about the celebration of the feast, like Pur, Purim, and all of this. And ah, that's nothing to her; she, just tradition. So as we're getting ready to go out, we were talking about going and getting some euros, and she says, "Make sure you get the pork." I'm like, should you be saying this? <laughs> that's not what you should be saying, is it? <laughs> should you be saying this? It's just tradition to them. As they look back into the Old Testament, it's just tradition. And so notice Mark 7, verse 9, and he says unto them, um, I'll go back a little bit just to get some context. In verse 6 he says, he answered and said unto them, Well, has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, the peop- These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Isn't that what they did? Do you know that's what people are doing in the church today? The church has their own traditions that they've substituted in the place of the truth of God's word. Verse 8, for laying aside the commandment of God you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and of cups and many other such like things you do. And he says unto them, For well you reject the commandment of God that you might keep what? Your traditions. Your traditions. I think Satan took Israel truth of what the Old Testament talked about as they are coming to a conclusion they're diverted over into believing all of this other stuff that don't amount to a hill of beans and to this day their hearts are hardened what does it say 
in Romans 9, 10, and 11, God's going to deal with them in the future. He's going to open their hearts that they can see. But right now, those hearts are hard as a rock, and you can't see it. Another place that you see this uh, manipulation of the mind, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, of the unforgiveness. Satan uses that. So here you can see this is an easy one to see in that um, Satan is, uh, so you have the Corinthian church. They were <laughs> dealing with this guy who was with his father's wife in Second and First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. First they took the posture that, oh, we're not going to judge. Why? Who are we to judge? We're just going to love. And Paul sent a message to them saying, I'm not even there and I've already judged the guy. Get that guy out of the church. So what did they do? They went from that posture to the other direction. They put the guy out of the church. Satan dealt with him as God allowed him to. The guy had a change of mind. He comes and repents, and the church doesn't want to let him back in. They were unforgiving. So Paul wrote this to him, First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. Uh, start with verse uh, 10. He says, To whom uh, ye forgave, forgive anything, I forgive also. If I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. You've, you know people, and I've seen people that are just unforgiving. And they've said, I will never forgive that person. And look at their life. I think it's hurting that person more than it's hurting the other person, right? And you see people that have become so bitter, right? And he says this word advantage. It actually has the idea that Satan has the ability to exploit you through unforgiveness. And so notice, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That word, is that phrase ignorant of his devices. And I give you three different um, translations there on, the, on page five under four that shows you that word device is not really a good translation. Now, the New American uh, Standard translates it so that, we, he, uh, that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. Or the Revised Standard says we're not ignorant of his designs. My translation would be this. We are not ignorant of the things that he does to manipulate the conclusions of our minds. So here's the truth. Forgive this guy. Satan comes in and says, as you're getting ready to conclude, yeah, 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 we should forgive. But look at what that guy did. Can you forgive that guy for that? And so Satan comes in with an alternative truth to divert your mind away into something that's not true at all. And that's what happened to the Corinthians. Last thing we'll see is in the fourth chapter. And this is one of the pivotal ways that he really is uh, working in the minds of unsaved men. And so notice Paul says this in Second Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 3, he says, But if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this, the word worlder is actually the word age, the God of this age has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the glorious gospel of Christ, which is in the image of God, should shine unto them. And so what is happening? Here's the truth. You give the gospel. Christ died on the cross for our sins, and he was buried, and he was raised the, from the uh, dead on the third day. Satan comes in with an alternative as they're getting ready to conclude, and you can see this. And he says, 
I'll tell you a good, a good example, a guy I was dealing with at work. I gave him the gospel of Christ, died on the cross for our sins, he was buried. And just, it was interesting what he did when I brought up the resurrection. You could just see that there was, his countenance changed. Resurrection? Somebody can be raised from the dead? You mean that somebody can be raised and his countenance changed? Or Satan brings in the idea, depending on who the person is, I think he tells it to whoever the person is. There ain't nothing but hypocrites in the church anyway. Or I had an experience once in the church and people treated me wrong. I went in there and somebody didn't even say hi to me. Or fill in the gap. Any number of things that he tailor makes to the person to divert you away from what's true. So that your conclusions are not true. And that's what he does. And so this word for blind is that he, to cause a mental, the mental faculties of the mind to be so taken with information that blots out the desire to consider, in, consider any alternative facts that counters the currently held facts. Haven't you seen people like that? You try to tell them what's true and it's almost like just hitting a wall. You'd be probably get more response from that wall than talking to them, particularly as it relates to salvation. Satan blinds the minds. So you cannot argue people into being saved. You have people who believe in um, apologetics and they believe that they can argue and reason people into being saved. Good luck with that. You're not going to argue anybody into being saved. And we understand that the Holy Spirit is the one that does the work. Notice he says he blinds the minds. See that word lest? You have an idiom here that is used in the New Testament. And it really denotes the purpose for why he blinds the minds. Because if Satan didn't blind the mind of unbelievers, they would believe it. So he blinds their minds so they can't see. See that word less? It's, it actually has the idea of a purpose for why something occurs. In 2 Corinthians 1.4, it's used of God, why God comforts us. He comforts us in order that the comfort that we're comforted by, we might be able to comfort, our, comfort others. So this idiom really tells us, unless say, if Satan didn't blind the minds, there would be an opportunity for them to believe. But see that? And we see several illustrations here with Eve, with the Corinthian church, on two occasions, with the unsafe man. Here's what's true. Satan, as the mind is coming to a conclusion, brings in an alternative to veer the mind away from what's true into la-la land. I never understood why Okay, so if somebody tells me something, I might not agree with it, but I at least want to hear all the facts. Just tell me all the facts. What's wrong with hearing all the facts? But we have, when Satan is blinding the mind, people don't want to hear all the facts. They take what's true, Satan diverts them away from what's true, and they reject what's true for this alternative. And the next thing you know, We'll see you next week. They're deceived.
it's a tragedy when you see people who actually believe that what they're doing is right. They think they're on the right track. And they're so far, of course, that they can't see the forest for the trees. But they're convinced that they're right in what they do. There's a lot of people out here in the world convinced that what they're doing is right. <coughs> you can't even argue against them or argue with them. And all I say, again, we're all going to find out one day. I hope we don't have to wait that long. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to see these things and grateful that we can understand what Satan does and the things that he does to work against our minds. So many illustrations that we see in scripture of how he does that and that he uses other information in exchange for that which is not true in order to get our minds to conclude things that are totally away from what is real and what you have said in your word. We're so thankful that as believers, as we're illuminated by the Spirit, we can, um, as we live in our position, put on the armor and be able to guard ourselves against the things that Satan does to work against the conclusion of our mind that we might be able to see things as they really are on a consistent basis. And we're thankful for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.